So, knowing the rules of the game, whatever the game is, it's, it's very important. If you don't know the rules of a game, whatever that is, it's not going to go well for you. A few years ago, my brother-in-law, lovely brother-in-law, Will, he and his wife came home with a fish. Came home with a fish for my three-year-old daughter at the time, Adeline. Of course, Adeline was thrilled. Her parents, not so much. I have never owned any animal whatsoever. My wife's had about 50, but I've never owned anything. So this whole fish thing was a, a new ball game for me. So got, got, apparently you're supposed to get a bowl for a fish, and apparently fish eat food. So we got some food, right? Bowl, food, we're good to go. So, you know, caring for the fish. By the way, if I didn't mention this, Adeline named the fish Triangle. Okay, that is the greatest name for a pet in the history of names. Triangle the fish. I can't make this up. So a week later, you know, Triangle's happy-go-lucky, just swimming all over the place. He's great. Life's great. A week later, I look over, and I notice Triangle's kind of dirty, and his bowl's pretty dirty. And so me being the good dad, uh, I take Triangle out of the bowl, put him in a little temporary bowl, dump the water out, clean it with some Dawn dish soap, scrub it nice and clean, put nice clear water back in there, put Triangle in, boom, go about my business. Yeah, yeah. About 30 minutes later, I look over, and Triangle's kind of, you know, got one flipper going. He's kind of making circles, not looking so well. Like, oh, that's kind of weird. I wonder if I fed him. I gave him a little more food. A couple hours later, I look over, and Triangle, to my horror, is belly up. Just, he gone. Like, he's, he's, he's dead. I killed Triangle. I was mortified. There's a half second. I'm like, do I lie to my daughter? No, I can't do that. <clears throat> Turns out, <laughs> what I didn't know is that when you clean a fish tank, you have to clean it with chemicals that are not toxic to the fish, a.k.a. not Dawn dish soap, okay? So if you ever get a, get a fish, don't use Dawn dish soap. You know, we told Adeline she was sad for like 30 seconds and moved on with her life, did something. You see, I didn't know the rules of the fish game, and it didn't go well for me, nor did it go well for Triangle. May he rest in peace. You know, like I said, it's true, the necessity, it's Triangle to fish. Sorry, I keep laughing about that. Uh, the necessity of knowing the rules of the game is, is true in all sorts of areas. There's rules for driving, there's rules for your jobs, rules for your classes, rules for relationships, and it's especially true when it comes to our relationship with God. You see, we need to know the rules of the game, so to speak, if you and I want to be successful. So in our passage tonight... God provides us with a case study of sorts to show us what life in his kingdom looks like. It's, it's like God is giving us a manual or a playbook so that we're going to know, you and me together, will know how to be faithful citizens in his kingdom, thrive and grow in his kingdom. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're in a series through the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel called The Promise of a King. Last week we heard from Kyle about God being a just king. And there's no place for injustice in this kingdom. And this week we're going to continue to learn about what life in this kingdom looks like and how we can play a part in being faithful in it, how we can thrive and grow. And so if you're tonight, if you're here tonight and you're curious as to what the heck does it mean to live a Christian life, if you're here tonight and you want to thrive and grow in your relationship with Jesus, personally and along with others, rather than just survive the week and limp through another week and be exhausted and burnt out, if you want to experience true joy and peace and mercy that comes from that relationship with God, then you and then me, we need to listen up tonight because God has some things to tell us about that in our passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's kind of in the first third 
of your Bible, if you've got a paperback Bible. While you do that, let me, let me set the scene for us, okay? So the last thing we knew about Samuel, we heard in, in chapter 2 that he was born to Hannah, right? And Hannah gave Samuel over when he was about 2 to the priests in the temple. Well, since then, God has brought down the priestly house of Eli because of their injustice. Last week we heard about his sons and, and Eli, how God struck them down. And now God has raised up Samuel to be Israel's new leader. And Samuel is called a judge. Now this is a noun, not a verb. Nobody wants to be judged. Nobody should judge. This is a noun. And so when you hear that term judge, you should think of this. A judge is God's chosen representative, chosen person who has the specific mission to turn his people back to God. You see, the people of Israel are supposed to be the shining light to the nations. They're supposed to be a blessing to rid the world of sin, yet they were house divided. They didn't do it. They were worse than the people around them. And so God raised up these judges, that's what the Old Testament book of Judges is about, that would raise up and lead the people back into faithfulness and a right relationship with God. It's a vitally important job because this is the normal way that God showed that he's alive and well and working and ruling as king in the world. And so in the ancient Near East, if somebody asked, hey, you know, what's different about your God? How do I know if he's ruling or not? Well, you'd have to say, look, God has chosen a judge. He is the representative of God's rule in the world. So Samuel is now raised up as this judge. I'll pick it up in chapter 7, starting in verse 2. From the day that the ark of the Lord was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, just a city, a long time passed, some 20 years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. First lesson we learned tonight here is that we need to be people who know how to repent. In verse 2, it says that Israel was lamenting after the Lord. That's just another way of saying that they were rebelling. They were pushing against God's rule and God's reign in their lives. For tw- I mean, think about that. For 20 years, they're supposed to be a light to the nations, and yet they don't want to do that. They're blending in with these nations. And so in verse 3, Samuel says this, put away the foreign gods. Now, he had to tell them this because they were literally worshiping foreign gods. Think about that just for a second. You are Israel. You have been saved from slavery in Egypt. You walked through a sea. You saw God on a mountain. You've heard these stories over and over again. And here you have other idols that you're bowing down to and worshiping. This is an example of one. It's called the Baals. These were Canaanite fertility gods that you were supposed to make sacrifices to and do certain things, and it was believed that they would cause the the, the skies to open and rain and provide water for their crops. So they've adapted this story. They've brought them in together. They're mixing their gods together. And unfortunately, this isn't anything new for Israel. If you know the story, back in Exodus 32, Israel had been saved from slavery, seen the plagues, walked through the sea, saw God at a mountain. Moses goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. What does Israel do while they're down on the ground? They're impatient. They're waiting for Moses. And so here's what happens. Exodus 32, verse 1. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron. That's Moses' brother. And said to him, hey Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. 
And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's completely ridiculous. It's offensive. It's idiotic. How could those people have been so naive and stupid? Good thing that doesn't happen today. But unfortunately, it literally does. I totally agree that it's ridiculous, and this idolatry doesn't make sense. But this is actually happening today. You know, if you've been around Veritas a while, we send a team over to Nagoya, Japan, and they partner with a church there. Part of the trip is going around and getting a sense of the culture of Japan. And early on in the trip, they stop by a city that has a lot of Buddhist temples. And here's a picture behind me. This is a picture of people literally bowing down to idols. Those little open uh, slates are where people can throw money uh, to sort of ask for favor for the gods. They burn incense, and they're literally bowing down. Now, I haven't been, but I've talked to enough staff and students who've said, you know, when they, when they see this, they see the bowing of the heads and knees and smelling the incense burning and hearing the empty prayers. It's extremely shocking. And it's sad because it puts this literal idol worship front and center. They see just how futile it is and just how pointless it is. So idol worship, it's not less than literally bowing down to idols. But of course, idol worship is much, much more than that. Probably most of us, maybe none of us in here worship literal idols, but we've all got them. I can't say it any better than Tim Keller. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. If you haven't read it, want something to read, I would highly recommend it. He says this, what is an idol? Well, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. It is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living for. So, so what absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? And what do you daydream about? Do you daydream about that person noticing you? Do you daydream about getting everything done on your to-do list today? Do you daydream about that GPA or that internship? Do you daydream about how to get the most followers on instant, on Instagram or social media among your friend group? You know, what, what's so central to your life that if you lost it, life would hardly feel worth living for? If you lost that career track you're on, if you lost your popularity, if you lost your friendships, if you lost your significant other? What if you lost your respect? What if you lost the ability to numb pain by alcohol, by drugs, by prescription drugs? What if you lost your phone? You see, anybody or anything that has, has the capacity to become a foreign god of sorts, anything. And, and so have you asked yourself that question, what's yours? Have you asked someone else that question? Have you been asked that question? Have you told someone, hey, tell me what you think mine is? Because again, this isn't, this Christian life, it's not just an individual pursuit, it's a group project. We need other people to do this for us too. And once we see the idol, once we know what it is, there's only one thing to do, and that's repent. It's repent. Back to 1 Samuel 7 and verse 3, it's what he says. If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You see, Samuel doesn't just expect Israel to turn from their gods. He actually expects them to turn to something else. And in this case, it's God. It's the Lord. It's king. 
That's what he wants. To, he wants them to turn towards it. He says, notice in this verse, direct your heart. This literally, in, in this Hebrew word, has the sense of fixing your heart to something. It's, it's this call to exhibit a tenacious determination towards God. Most simply, probably means go that way. And don't let anyone or anything stop you. Don't go this way, not towards your sin. Go that way towards God. He also says to serve God, their king. And this clarifies a little bit what this heart devotion should be like. It's a concern to further God's agenda. It's signing up to work in God's campaign. Not my campaign, not your campaign, not theirs, but God's. You see, Samuel expects a, a heartfelt turning to God in the mind and in the heart and in our actions. He expects the community to take up their call to be a light to their nations. And he expects it to back it up by doing something about it. And so the people of Israel, in verse 4 we see, they actually did it. They put away the bales. And they turned and they served the Lord. Okay, two stories. Another one about Adeline. This time last year. Uh, one time we came home from the store and we bought what is no doubt, uh, we're just talking about facts here, the greatest dessert of all time. Say it with me. Double stuffed Oreos. Very good. Dipped in milk, very good, vitamin D milk. Uh, so anyway, we got these, right? We got the vitamin D milk, we got the Oreos. And Adeline, we let her have two, because we're not those stingy parents who give her one. We had to let her have two. And we said, that's enough, good. Folded the little tab, you know, it sticks there. Uh, we went upstairs to give our youngest a bath. We came downstairs, noticed that the peel was a little bit up, and there were two more gone. So Adeline doesn't think through things very well, doesn't quite have the capacity to to, to think through these things. And so we, we asked her, we said, did you take two more Oreos? And she said, yes, I did. I said, okay, no more Oreos tomorrow, and you need to write us an apology letter. And so she did it. I was proud of her. She's learning to write. It's kind of cute. I think we still have it. But wrote a good letter. I mean, it was about a page and a half. And it was so cute, right? Oh, it's so cute. Yeah, it was great. I was floored. I was like, all right, praise the good Lord. <laughs> So we said, good job, you can stay down here, you can color, do whatever. We go upstairs, put Clay to bed, put Tyler to bed, and then go back downstairs, didn't see Adeline. Went upstairs, she's in her bed reading. I'm like, awesome. So I sit down next to her, and I look, and the cover's there, and little chocolate crumbs. <laughs> and I said, uh, hey, Adeline, what's that? And she started whimpering a little bit, and, you know, shivering, and turns out that little sinner had snuck two more Oreos <laughs> out of the bag after writing this note. And apologizing, clearly, clearly, sorry, Adeline, if you're hearing this 20 years later, uh, not really, though, because you weren't sorry, she was, was not truly repentant. She was only sorry that she got caught, only sorry that she got caught. Here's a second story. Keith Simon, his pastor at the crossing, he's told this, years ago, was counseling a guy for several weeks, and one of the issues that this guy uh, kept bringing up was just this fight against lust, right, struggling against pornography and looking at things he shouldn't. And after two or three weeks of the same old thing, Keith, you know, realized he could say some harder things. And he said, you know what, I think you need to, you need to do something about this. You need to go cut your cable or something, right, because nothing's changing. So next week, guy came back. First thing, he sits down, had a bag, pulls, pulls, literally pulls cables out of his bag. This guy went home that day. And rather than call the cable company, he got out some hedge trimmers and just slice and cut his own cable. Literally. Literally. Right? It was clear that this guy was truly repentant. Yes, he was sorry for his sin, but he went home and he did something about it. What's the point? Adeline showed false repentance. This cable cutter, he showed true repentance. We'll call him that. You see, which one are you? Which one am I? Are we, are we just sorry 
Is that all we are for our sin? Are we still sneaking Oreos, whatever they are? Or are we truly repentant? Are we doing something about it? Are we cutting the cable, whatever the cable might be? You see, false repentance, it's only being sorry. It's talking the talk, saying and doing all the right things. We know the head knowledge, but it doesn't go down to our heart. If we could choose what to do, we don't really want to do it. True repentance, on the other hand, is talking the talk and walking the walk. It means changing our thoughts, changing our feelings, changing our behaviors in some way, fighting against our sin, turning away from our sin and turning towards Jesus in some way. Israel was truly repentant. And so we got to ask ourselves, are we truly repentant? You know, maybe we have to do something drastic. You know, maybe we need to find a new place to live. Right now, end of this week. Maybe we need to get new friends tomorrow. Maybe we need to break up with somebody. Maybe we need to get rid of our smartphone. Get a little T9 guy, you know, take an hour to text. Maybe that's what we need. But it doesn't have to be just something drastic. It could be something relatively small. Maybe you need to get up 20 minutes earlier so that you can read your Bible. Maybe you need to start exercising on a regular basis to get out of some of the apathetic, lethargic habits. Maybe that'll help you sleep better. Maybe you need to commit to having lunch with a friend a couple times a week instead of just isolating to study and do your own thing. I don't know. There's big or small. There's lots of ways to show true repentance. I don't know what that is for you, but I do know this. True repentance means taking action in some way. So that first lesson, we need to be people who know how to repent. This leads to another question, though. How, how does that whole thing get started? How do we start this process, process of repentance? And most importantly, how do we keep it going? Because this is a lifelong process. By the way, you don't just do it once and you're good. Living the Christian life is a lifetime of repenting. Let's keep reading this story in, in chapter 7, verse 5. This is how it starts. Verse 5, Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Second thing we need to know how to succeed in God's kingdom is that we need to know who our sin is against. Who our sin is against. So Samuel gathered the entire nation of Israel together at this city called Mitzpah. The remains of it here behind me, kind of up on a on a hill, and this is a sort of a national assembly where the entire people get together and they practice and declare their repentance together. They offer sacrifices. They go without water. That's kind of symbolic for saying that we need the Lord more than we need food and water. They're doing this together. Notice what they did not say in that final phrase. They did not say we have sinned against our neighbors. They didn't say we've sinned against our friends or our boss or our significant other or our professor or whoever. They said that they sinned against the Lord. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that our sin does not have horizontal effects on our relationships. Absolutely, it does. That's one of the big dangers of sin. But we will crash and burn in our Christian lives. We won't make it if we don't realize that first and foremost, our sin affects the most important relationship we have, and that's the vertical one. That's the relationship we have with Jesus. That's who our sin affects first and foremost. We sung about this uh, a little bit ago in worship, Psalm 51. It was written by King David after he repented of his sin. See, he slept with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And he sent her husband, Uriah, to die on the front lines, and he covered it up. And by God's grace, he saw his 
error of his ways, he repented and he turned to God. And this is what he writes in Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The you is not Uriah. The you is not Bathsheba. The you is God himself. Absolutely, David sinned against Bathsheba. Absolutely, David sinned against Uriah. But David got something that we need to get. He understand that first and foremost, he sinned against the Lord. This former soccer player named Gavin Peacock, never heard of him, interesting last name. Uh, he told the story in an article in Christianity Today. See, he grew up uh, with his dad for a coach, and his dad pushed him really, really hard to be the best he could at soccer. Kind of burned him out a little bit. At 16, he was in the pros, made his debut. And over the next couple of years, he, he really grew. But he says that his performance and his happiness was totally tied to his performance. So if he'd have a great game, the fans were cheering him. He loved it. He was on cloud nine. But if he had a bad game, he would crash. He'd be depressed. And so his happiness was just up and down based on his performance, and he got sick of it. One Sunday, he found himself in a church. And the pastor of that church came and invited him, invited him to a Bible study. He got talking to him, heard his story, invited him to come to the Bible study. He went one week, and then he went another week. And another week, and he never stopped going. And he talked about what he learned over the course of those weeks in his Bible study that actually made him come back and over and over. That's what he said. I realized in that study that my biggest problem in life wasn't whether I met the disapproval of a 20,000-strong crowd on Saturday. My biggest problem was my sin and the disapproval of Almighty God. I realized that the biggest obstacle to happiness was that soccer was king instead of Jesus. See, he knew his biggest problem wasn't displeasing a crowd, wasn't displeasing a teammate, it was displeasing God. Uh, this actually, I hesitated to share this because it's so fresh. Two nights ago, middle of the night, Tyler comes in and, and says that he wants to turn his light on because he's scared. And I have a temper. My family knows I have a temper. My friends know I have a temper. And I, and I really, I lost it worse than I ever have. I argued and bargained with Tyler for like four or five minutes. He still would not turn it off, and I finally, I just lost it. I screamed at the top of my lungs. I yelled at him. My wife came into the room and wondering what is going on, thinking she needs to protect Tyler from me, and, and really, she did. Um, it's not okay what I did, and I, I still I am ashamed. I mean, it had a huge effect on Tyler, a huge effect on Polly. It sucks. As much pain as I caused my son, as much pain as I caused my wife, the biggest problem was that I sinned against God. You see, God loves Tyler. That's his son. God loves Polly. That's his daughter. And he has given me the opportunity and the privilege to love them, care for them. And so when I lost my cool, lost my temper selfishly, I got angry at God. I slapped God in the face. That's what my sin does first and foremost. Of course I sinned against Tyler. Of course I sinned against Polly. But I sinned against God. What about you? Do you see how your sin affects God? You know, lots of examples. When we fill our schedules to the brim and we leave no room to spend time with God, we're sinning against God. We are neglecting that relationship because we think something else is more important. School, friends, entertainment, whatever. When we speak ill of someone to their face, behind their back, online, over text, we're sinning against God because he has made that person in his image, and he loves them. And it's given you and me the opportunity to care for them. But when we speak ill of people and we cut people down, use our words to hurt 
instead of love, we're sinning against God. If we want to be faithful citizens in God's kingdom, if we want to thrive and grow in that relationship with Jesus, if we want to know what the Christian life looks like, we've got to know who our sin is affecting. That's not a fun process. Admitting we've got a problem before a holy and righteous king, no less, it can fill us with guilt and it can fill us with shame, rightfully show. And so we've got to ask ourselves, why? why? Why is it worth it to go through this pain? Why does God want us to go through this? Well, here's why. Final lesson. We need to do this because hope is found on the other side of repentance. That's our third lesson. Hope is found on the other side of repentance. Let's finish out the story in verse 7. A few verses here. So we've got this National Assembly of Repentance. Verse 7, the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. These are the people who had defeated them huge ways a few chapters earlier. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth Car. In verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen, called his name Ebenezer. For he said, until now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. You see, through Israel's repentance, God provided hope for Israel in two ways. The first, God gave them hope in a specific representative, a specific person. So again, we see Israel's gathered together at this city for this national assembly, but word got out to the Philistines. And back then, if you heard a nation was gathering together, most likely they were getting ready to attack you. And so the Philistines said, you know what? Before they can attack us, we're going to attack you. That's why they marshaled all their forces and they rode out to attack Israel. And so Israel hears this. And what do they do? They cry out to Samuel, to their representative. And when they did, he interceded for them. In verse 9, it says, Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. You know, today, if you and I have an emergency... We know we call 911. It's one of the first lessons we teach our kids. And for Israel, their 911 is Samuel. When they get a problem, when they're feeling desperate, they call out to Samuel. And he put their words, he put their grief to words before God. And what did God do? God answered. Right? He saved them. He thundered against the Philistines, which is actually uh, fulfills a prophecy that Hannah talked about, that God will thunder against the Israel of Israel's enemies through this king. So God thundered against the Philistines. He threw them into confusion and allowed Israel to defeat them. So he gave them hope through a person, but that's not the only thing he gave them. He gave them hope in a stone. If you go to verse 12, it says, Samuel built a stone and called it Ebenezer. And that, that word literally means stone of help. And it was a stone that reminded the people that God was helping them. This would not have come naturally. Think about it. Remember it. For 20 years, they're worshiping idols. 20 years, they're rebelling against God, their king's rule. 20 years. Surely they're washed up. Surely they're forgotten. Surely God has moved on. But no, not at all. 
God commands the building of the stone. And so when they saw this, when they walked by it, when they felt it with the tips of their fingers, they're supposed to remember how God helped them in their time of need. And they're supposed to remember that they need to repent, turn from their sin, and run to the Lord because he's still for them. He still loves them. He still wants them. He's still their king. God gave Israel hope by giving them a representative in this stone as a result of their repentance. But today... For us, God has given us something even better than that. If that sounds good to you, this is even better. First of all, God gives us hope through a person, but a better person. He gives us hope through King Jesus. You see, just as Israel cried out to Samuel, God wants us to cry out to Jesus. He is our representative. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 in the New Testament, Apostle Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is seated at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That is an ongoing verb, still happening right now. He's approaching God. He's appealing to God. You see, when we turn away from our sin, when we repent, when we realize our sin is against God and we turn uh, to Jesus, we find that we have someone who's going to hear our cry. Jesus is going to go to bat for us. I mean, just let's just slow down for a second. Imagine the conversation. Jesus takes us with him into God's presence. This is God, the Lord of the universe, ruling over everything right now. He says, hey, God, they're with me. He's with me. She's with me. Yeah, I know what they've done. I know they did it again. I know they cheated you. I know they cursed you. I know they haven't cared about you until now. I know they've spent their entire life, the last 20 years, hiding and running from you. I know they seem to be apathetic, but you know what? I love them, and I want them. And you know what God says? He says, well, Jesus, since they're with you, then I want them too. Since they're with you, Jesus, then I want them too. You know, what have you done in the past that makes you think there's no hope? What have you done that you think is too shameful, too disgusting, too guilty for God to accept you? What are you doing or not doing right now that's keeping you from Jesus? You know what you should do? You know what I should do? We should repent. We should put that sin away and we should turn to Jesus because he's here to represent you. He's here to represent us. Remember, God says, well, Jesus, since they're with you, I want them too. So we have hope through a person, Jesus. But not only that, we have hope through a wooden cross. Not through a stone, but we have hope through a wooden cross. See, there's hope in this cross. And this cross, of course, symbolizes the death and the resurrection. The historical death and resurrection, by the way, actually happened of Jesus. And this proves that we're at peace. So Colossians, New Testament book written by Paul, chapter 1, verse 20. Through Christ, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's hope in this cross because it proves that our sin is canceled. God doesn't see it anymore. Colossians 2, a little few verses later, 13 and 14. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You know, maybe this is why in Galatians 6, 14, Paul boasts in the cross. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To boast in something means it's the center of your life. You laud it. You proclaim it. You share it. You trust in it. That's what we need to do with the cross because there's hope. So if we ever wonder if God loves us, if we ever wonder if there's hope for us, 
We should look to the wooden cross. I'm going to end with a movie clip. Maybe some of you have seen the movie Apollo 13. Tom Hanks started it back in the mid-90s, a long time ago now. Uh, it tells the story of, of how NASA was able to bring home these astronauts who they failed to land on the moon, but they still needed to be brought home. Uh, it's a little old, and it's kind of cheesy in how it's filmed, so be, be warned. But let's watch it anyway. Apollo 13 Commander Jim Lovell has more time in space, almost 24 days already, than any other man. And I asked him recently if he ever was scared. Oh, well, I've had an engine flame out a few times at an aircraft and was kind of curious as to whether it was going to light up again, things of that nature. But uh, they, they seem to work out. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall fear? Uh, well, I tell you, I remember this one time I'm, uh, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. Uh, it was a Shangri-La. We were in the Sea of Japan, and my, my radar had jammed. And my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency. And so it was, it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean. So uh, I flip on my map light. And then suddenly, zap, everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone, and I can't even tell now what my altitude is. Uh, I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about, uh, about ditching in the ocean. And I, I look down there, and then... In, in the darkness, there's this, uh, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae, right? It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was, it was, it was just leading me home. And now, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that. So, uh, you, uh, you never know what, what events are going to transpire to get you home. You know, as the the music team's up comes up I, I hope you caught it you know tom hanks he's he's flying a mission and his whole plane goes dark he's in total darkness he was lost didn't know how to get home but he looked out his window and there was this phosphorescent glowing algae and he followed that home and that's how he was able uh, to be saved i think it's a good it's a good picture of many of us you know do, do you feel lost right now do you feel like you're in darkness do you want to find peace do you need some rest? Do you need some relief? Well, there's hope. You see, there's a light leading us home, just like that algae, except it's a cross. It's a wooden cross. And so the next time you're in darkness, the next time you feel hopeless, the next time you feel like you're not worthy or you shouldn't come or you shouldn't repent, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus because King Jesus is the light in the darkness. He's our representative. And his wooden cross is the reminder that there's a way home. So let's run to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess the ways that we are just like Israel, hiding idols, worshiping idols right alongside you in many ways. We want to acknowledge that. Maybe just even in the quiet of this moment right now, whatever that is, we lift it up to you. God, we acknowledge that to do that is painful and scary, and yet we want to trust that we have a better representative. We have Jesus who wants us, who uh, intercedes for us. Because of that, there's hope. And so I pray that 
you would move us to continue this lifestyle of repentance today, tomorrow, the rest of our days, where we never grow tired, where we never forget those lessons, that we may thrive and grow as faithful citizens to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.